Thank you so much for being here this morning. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for coming our way. Uh, we are in a series called Me, We, and He, and we're actually finishing it up this morning by talking about divorce. I'm sorry that you are visiting with us on such a heavy topic, but hopefully you will find it informative, enlightening, and helpful. You know, I'm a, I'm a country music fan. And one of my favorite country music artists is the legend, George Strait. In fact, it's the height of blasphemy if you're a Texan to not like George Strait. When you take the citizenship test for the Republic of Texas, you have to be able to recite at least five George Strait songs, right? One of my favorites is All My Exes Live in Texas. Remember that song, Rosanna's Down in Texarkana, Want Me to Push Her Broom? Sweet Eileen's in Abilene, She Forgot I Hung the Moon. It's a lighthearted, comical commentary on a very difficult subject. The truth of the matter is, the big D, and I don't mean Dallas, is a topic that many people don't find lighthearted or comical at all. It is one they have dealt with on a very real and tragic level. And I'm not going to bombard you with static, uh, stat, statistics this morning. I, I'm not going to do a deep dive doctrinal discussion and who can be married and remarried and divorced and all of that. No, I think we all know that divorce runs rampant in our culture. Even it's a problem in the church. But what I want to do this morning is take a more redemptive approach. Because I think that's what we're lacking at times in the church Unfortunately, I have seen over and over again the divorced be treated as a leper and maybe not finding the love and support in the one place that they should be able to find it. God does not give up on you, whatever your status is, and neither do we. I want to start this morning with some truth. Actually, this whole lesson is going to be truth, but I want to start with a truth this morning that is hard for some people to hear. But I want you to stick with me. Don't tune me out just yet. Let's read in Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt with treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So here's the hard truth. God hates divorce. And if you're someone who has been divorced, this may not be your favorite verse in the Bible. But I think it's important to highlight what God didn't say. God didn't say, I hate the divorced. God says, I hate divorce. And do you know why God hates divorce? Because he loves people. And divorce is a detriment to his people. It is devastating 
because it breeds heartbreak and emptiness and depression and feelings of guilt and shame and failure and bitterness and hurt. Divorce, even on scriptural grounds, brings about broken promises, broken hearts, and consummates in a broken home. Divorce is grief without death, and that's why God hates it, because he loves his people. And it's important to understand the bigger context here. If you know anything about me, you know that I don't like to just concentrate on a single verse or verses. I want to look at the bigger picture and the context surrounding that verse. And what you notice in the book of Malachi, what is happening here surrounding the statement, God hates divorce, is an apathetic attitude by the people who just shrug their shoulders, throw their hands up and say, so what? That was their attitude. And that was the motivation behind the accusations that God was levying against his people. Their worship was polluted. Their apathetic attitude had affected their relationships as we see with the poverty and the corruption and the injustice that was running rampant. It affected their marriages as God called them out for their disregard of the marriage covenant. And it affected their giving. In other words, their whole lives were polluted. And their only response was, so what? What difference does it make anyway? God's people were bringing their polluted lives before the Lord and weeping and groaning because God had rejected them. They did as they had pleased, blatantly disregarding what the Lord had said. And they soaked the altar with their tears. And God said, that's not good enough. You see, God makes reference to the marriage covenant as a symbol of the overall covenant with his people. The marriage covenant is serious business, but the people had treated this covenant as disposable, just like they had treated their relationship with God as disposable. God often used the covenant of marriage as a metaphor for the type of relationship that he had with his people, so that when they were unfaithful and they worshiped idols, he called it spiritual adultery. They had broken the marriage covenant. The capricious divorce that was going on during Malachi's day and time was symbolic of the breaking of God's covenant with his bride, the people, which prompted the words, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. God had been faithful to his bride over and over again, and yet the people looked at their God and said, yeah, I'm just not that into you. God's people had made a mess of their lives. They had been unfaithful in their marriages, in their covenant with God, and yet they still expected God to bless them. And God says, are you serious? Really? You expect me to bless you when you have blatantly ignored the, the covenant that I have made with you? That's the bigger picture that we all need to see. God's people had made a mockery of the covenant of marriage and their covenant with him, which he saw as a marriage. And that's similar to the words that Jesus conveys in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? 
He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Jesus is answering a question that is bigger than just yes or no. A trap was being set. It's a loaded question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now that's a question that deserves a little more detail, right? Especially when you consider the circumstances surrounding it. Because it all goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting in verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. The controversy that was going on here was over the interpretation of two statements. Finds no favor in his eyes and found some indecency in her. Those were the two statements at the center of the controversy, and there were three prominent rabbis who had three differing views on this subject. First, you had Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel taught that you could divorce your wife for any reason, and the example he used is if she burned the dinner. She burned your supper, you can, you can be done with her. Then you had Rabbi Shammai, who taught that divorce was only only allowable where there is immorality or adultery. He saw indecency as sexual sin. Then you had Rabbi Akiba who wrote that you could divorce your wife if you found someone prettier to marry. He focused on the found no favor in his eyes statement. And so the Pharisees, the religious rulers, are telling Jesus to pick one. However, they're not looking for truth. They're looking to bait Jesus. They're setting a trap for him because they believed that no matter how he answered, he was going to alienate a large portion of the people. Most of the people in this day and age would have sided with Rabbi Hillel. They believe you could divorce a wife for any reason if she burned the supper. That's how most people believe. They were pretty sure Jesus didn't believe that. And so by Jesus not taking that side, he is going to alienate a large portion of the population. The trap has been set. Jesus is going to take the bait, and now they got him. But he doesn't. What he does is he skips past Deuteronomy, because they had perverted that just like they had perverted the rest of the law, and he goes all the way back to the very beginning. 
all the way back to Genesis and the institution of marriage, when the marriage covenant was pure and unadulterated before it was perverted by men who treated it like it was disposable. And from the beginning, divorce was not a part of the plan, right? A man and a woman were joined and became one for all of life without any separation other than death. And this, of course, was not the answer that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were looking for. Although, although they knew that there was an accommodation for divorce when there was no accommodation, I should say, for divorce when God instituted it, they knew that Moses had made an accommodation, right? Therefore, they asked Jesus, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, not to get too off track here, but you have to understand what was going on in the culture of Deuteronomy chapter 24, where all the controversy surrounds this. Men were marrying a woman, and when they got tired of her, they were going and marrying another woman. And when they got tired of her, they were going and marrying another woman. And women without a husband were completely destitute. And so Moses says, at least give her a certificate of divorce so she can get on with her life and marry someone who can take care of her. So that's kind of the the context surrounding Deuteronomy chapter 24. So we come to Matthew 19, and, and what we often do is we use Matthew 19 as our proof text for, for a doctrine that we affectionately call MDR, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And what I think happens all too often is we take Matthew 19 and we apply it as a universal, one-size-fits-all theology for every marriage and divorce and remarriage dilemma, and in the process, we miss a whole lot. By using this as a proof text, we miss some key teachings that Jesus is trying to get across. I'm not saying that Matthew 19 cannot be used as our doctrine for better understanding marriage What a good spot for my microphone to go dead, right? Man. So what I was saying is, Matthew 19 certainly has a lot to teach us concerning the subject of marriage and and divorce and even remarriage. We miss some key things in this passage when we only use it as a proof text. Jesus is saying, marriage is God-made. Divorce is man-made. God instituted marriage. Man devised a way out of it. Just that simple. Jesus is telling those who were listening that day and us as well that marriage is God's creation, not man's. This most sacred human relationship was designed by God. He is the divine architect of it. And therefore, 
we have no right to treat it in a self-directed manner. That if we want marriage to function well, then we have to function as he designed it. Jesus is redefining marriage for the people of his day and also for us. One man, one woman for life. That was the original intent. Marriage shouldn't have an exit strategy, Jesus says. He says, instead of always looking for a way out, glorify God in your marriage by staying in. Kind of like Henry Ford, the inventor of the first affordable automobile. When asked the question, what is the secret to a lifelong marriage? He said, stick with one model. But, but. There is ideal and there is real. We know that. And life is messy. Even in the midst of the most ideal environment, there is a reality that must be confronted. And even within the Lord's church, even among Christians, we know that divorce happens. Marriages end. There are men and women who are guilty as sin. There are men and women who never wanted to wear the label of divorce. While Jesus has said, what God has joined together, let no man separate, we know that couples do separate. It happens. And while Jesus allows that exception for fornication, that doesn't mean that he wouldn't rather couples work it out, but sometimes it just doesn't work out. We know that. We look around us, we see it, maybe you've lived it. So then what? What is the divorced Christian to do? Sadly, as I've mentioned already, the one who never wanted the divorce sometimes wears a a scarlet D on their chest, you know. They never wanted to wear that label, but they do. And all too often we focus so much on who's right and who's wrong. We try to determine who's the innocent party and who's the guilty party. We kick the guilty party to the curb. We focus on the innocent party. If we're taking a redemptive approach to this subject, as we should, and a redemptive approach to every subject, as we should, if we are people of redemption, we should be helping each and every person and party involved in a divorce to move forward with God and to be the best that they can possibly be. I will say this, I'm appreciative of our elders and how they handle this topic. I don't believe that elders should be in the bedroom. I don't believe that elders are private investigators. I don't believe it's their job to unscramble an egg. I know of a friend of mine who said that he worked with an eldership that they called a man in who wanted to place membership. And uh, he came in and sat down with the elders and they asked him if he had been married. And he said, well, he had been divorced, but you know, she had left him for another woman, and the eldership said, well, do you have video evidence? Because if you don't, then we're going to have a hard time letting you serve here. Come on, folks. I'm grateful that this is a church that takes a redemptive approach on every subject. God will always exalt the ideal. God will always exalt the ideal, but he'll always stoop down to the hurting. May we never forget that. We are all people who have needed God to stoop down at some point, right? May we never forget that. We've all needed God to stoop down. When the ideal intersects with the real is when grace comes in. As I said a moment ago, God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate the divorced. God is on the side of the hurting, the broken, the wounded, and therefore we had better be on their side as well. That doesn't mean that we compromise truth. 
I heard a minister talk about the touchy subject of divorce and remarriage like this. He said, you've just got to decide, are you going to be a church that is a stickler for doctrine, or are you going to be a church that shows compassion? And he went on to say, as for our church, we decided to show compassion. I'm sorry, I think that's a terrible false dichotomy. I think we can walk and chew gum here. I think that we can be about conviction and compassion. In fact, that should define us as God's people. All of us, no matter what the topic, should be about conviction and compassion. I in no way want to diminish my conviction for the sake of compassion, nor do I want to set aside compassion for the sake of conviction, right? Because when we emphasize one over the other, we hurt people. And that shouldn't be our goal. But sometimes we have to show tough love. I understand that. Even when conviction brings about tough love, that's necessary. I always want to be about both. I never want to be about hurting people. I want to use the truth to heal people. And we should all want that. We should all want a redemptive approach that requires love and compassion, but also truth. Because the goal is always the same, to help an individual heal emotionally, mentally, maybe even physically, but certainly spiritually. So, with that in mind, I want to offer some loving advice to those who are dealing with divorce. Number one, choose better over bitter. I had a lady come in my office many years ago whose husband had left her for another woman and she was bitter. And as she came in and she shared the whole situation, you could just see it. You could feel it. It was palpable. She was bitter and she was angry. You know, we're all kind of like glasses of water, aren't we? Filled to the brim. When somebody bumps us, whatever we're filled with is going to spill out. And if you're filled with bitterness and anger and somebody bumps you, that's what's going to spill out. You're going to be bitter and you're going to be angry. And as a result, this, this poor woman didn't have many friends. She had kind of driven everybody away because she was so bitter and so angry. And I asked her, I said, how many men have hurt you? And she said, well, one. And I said, and how many men are there? And she got the point. Hopefully we understand that we have a choice. We can choose better or bitter. Please choose better every single time. The second piece of advice I would give is choose disciple over divorced. You've already heard me say it in this series. You are not defined by your marital status. Your identity is not found in your spouse or your singleness or the fact that you're a widow or a widower or you're divorced. Your identity is found in Christ. Remember who it is you belong to. I know the world wants to categorize us and place us in a box. Married, unmarried, single, widow, widow, whatever. And maybe that's okay in some instances. But you are not defined by your marital status. That's not your identity. Remember who you belong to. And remember that at the end of the day, you can't let someone who didn't die for you define you. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
When you chose Christ, you chose redemption. You chose a new identity, a new life. Don't ever forget that. And finally, I would say choose renewal over removal. And don't choose what's easy here. Because what's easy is to pull back, to pull away. It's just a fact, and I see it all the time in ministry. When people need God in the church the most is when they come to Him the least. When they're hurting, when they're broken, when they're feeling guilt and shame, they pull back. And like I've said before, sadly, folks come to the church and realize it's the last place they can go for healing and help and and support. That should never be the case. I don't believe that's the case here. But when it comes to your brokenness, maybe you are blatantly wrong. Maybe you are the quote-unquote guilty party. As long as there is breath in your lungs, you have the hope of redemption and to make things right. But you don't get there by standing on the sidelines. You don't get there by staying home and worshiping at 10th and bedpost, right? Choose renewal over removal. I know you feel guilty sometimes. I know you feel as though God has let you down. Maybe or your brothers and sisters in Christ maybe don't always respond like they should. And that's on them. But don't let divorce destroy your faith. Don't let it ruin your relationship with God. He's faithful. Even if your spouse was not, even if you were not, renew your vows with Him. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, He's not going anywhere. A couple had bought a house that they intended to flip. They were going to update it and then live in it. And it was, a, it was a great house. It had good bones, but it was in severe need of some updating. And so they dug in and they realized that in the living room, there was this large mirror. And it was a beautiful mirror. It was vintage antique, but it was out of place. It didn't belong in the living room. So they wanted to remove it and keep it, place it somewhere else, but they soon learned that it was going to be impossible to do so. Whatever adhesive that they used to get that that mirror up on the wall, it wasn't coming down. They realized that the only way it was coming down is by breaking the mirror and tearing up the wall. In other words, there was not going to be a clean separation. And so it is with divorce. There's just not a clean separation. There isn't a formula or a five-step process to getting over divorce. It takes time to repair what has been destroyed. But my encouragement to all those who are in the rebuilding stage is this. Choose better over bitter. Choose disciple over divorced. And choose renewal over removal. And I would close with this. For all of those who felt like it was a series on marriage and that didn't apply to them, I hope you've realized that it does. Whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're married, been married for many years, whether it's an it's complicated situation, I don't know. So many times we remove ourselves and we tune the preacher out because we don't believe that the subject has any bearing on us. And if you're someone who is contemplating marriage, Or if you're someone 
who is living the single life and hopes to get married someday, I would say this. The best time to get, it, to get a divorce is before you get married. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, for this opportunity to be here as a church family. We thank you for your love and grace and mercy. We thank you for redemption and hope. May this always be a place of conviction and compassion. May we preach your truth in love and may we help to heal all those who are broken and in need of repair. God, may we be a loving church family that rallies around others for support and bears one another's burdens and seeks to make a difference in the lives of all of those, both within these walls and outside of them. We're so grateful, God, for your for your love for us and your grace and your compassion. May we exude that in our lives and may we exhibit that to everyone we come in contact with. Thank you, God. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, if we can help you this morning, I want to, by way of invitation, just say if, if you're hurting, if you're in need, if you'd like to have us pray with you or Maybe you're ready to begin a daily walk with God and you want to study the Bible with someone. Maybe you're interested in what it means to be a child of God. Maybe, maybe you've been studying that and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you just need to talk to somebody. We want you to know that we are here for you. And you don't have to answer the invitation to do that. You can come see me, one of the shepherds here, and we can help you. We love you. Thank you for being here. Luke's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.